Welcome to Talking Beats with Daniel Lelchuk. We hope you'll subscribe and give us a five-star review on Apple, Spotify, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Now, if you like the show, please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash talkingbeats. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash talkingbeats. We believe now more than ever in providing a platform for individuality, free thought, and a diverse range of views. By supporting the show this way, you'll get early access to episodes, bonus episodes, and much, much more. Remember, the conversation is always active at Talking Beats Podcast on social media. Here's Daniel Lelchuk. On today's program, we're speaking with NASA veteran astronaut, Colonel Terry Virts. He served as a U.S. Air Force test fighter pilot and as a graduate of the U.S. Air Force Academy, Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University and Harvard Business School. The astronaut who spent more than 200 days in space and served as the commander of the International Space Station has a book out recently that I wanted to talk about. It's called How to Astronaut, an Insider's Guide to Leaving Planet Earth. In all candor, I don't know how these conversations are going to go prior to having them. I was struck and I was moved by his views about the U.S. on the world stage and the possibilities of international cooperation. What can we learn from the International Space Station itself? He also has passionate views about opera, about classical music, about Mozart's The Marriage of Figaro, a piece that for some reason keeps coming up on this podcast. That, too, surprised me. Here he is, Colonel Terry Virts. I'm pleased to have him. Welcome. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me. So the big question that everybody thinks about when they hear the word astronaut, they think, what is it like? And I want to start right there. You've been asked it a million times. But if you'll tell us again, what is it like when you leave, you go far away, you see the Earth getting smaller? Is it as striking and as moving as we read and hear about? Um, no, uh, it's much more so. Uh, it's much more than I ever imagined because I had spent my whole life reading about space and watching space movies. And uh, I was in the astronaut office for almost a decade before I finally flew for the first time. And so I've been talking to my, my buddies who were astronauts uh, for a long time. So I kind of thought I knew what I was getting into. And my first views of the Earth were at nighttime. We launched at about four in the morning and remember seeing I-95 on the East Coast of America and my hometown. The launch in the nighttime was really amazing. But then a few minutes later, we were over the North Atlantic flying into our first sunrise. And that that long, thin strip of blue was so intense and the color was so vi vibrant. It was like this amazing, overpowering experience. And I remember thinking, man, I've never seen that shade of blue before. Um, and it was really hard to take my eyes off of it because I was the shuttle pilot. I had to fly the shuttle. We had to do a, a burn pretty quickly after launch to stabilize our orbit. And so I had work to do, but I just wanted to stare out the window. It was so gorgeous. And a bunch of the ice from the engine, when it shut down, a lot of liquid oxygen and hydrogen froze. So all these little particles of, of ice were flying by the, um, the window. Uh, and in this rising sun. So they were all sparkling. It was the most amazing sight I'd ever seen, except um, I ended up spending seven months plus in space after that. So 99% uh, of my time was spent working, doing mundane things. And then every once in a while, I'd have these amazing views of Earth and the universe. 
it's funny you mentioned I-95, a road I've driven on a lot. I grew up in New England, and uh, you know, yeah. you have grandparents in Connecticut. You're in New York a lot. You get to know I-95, and <laughs> going down to D.C., and I, I remember seeing I-95 leaving from various airports. But yep. <laughs> that's nothing compared to this. I mean, how how weird was it? <laughs> you know, so there, there, there's my little, where is your, what is your hometown, by the way? I'm from Maryland, from Columbia, Maryland. So we're kind of right in the middle. You know, it, yeah. 95 goes from Boston down to Miami, I think. So, um, yeah, so right in the middle. So, so th- there's Columbia, and then suddenly you're mm-hmm. you're in space. I mean, is, is it is it so bizarre that you uh, you? I guess you have a lot of responsibilities, right? While you you, you don't really have time to marvel, do you? And that was the challenge. Like I said, you know, I was the shuttle pilot, so I had work to do, and and for my whole seven months on my space shuttle flight. And then later on my Soyuz uh, long duration space station mission, um, I was always busy, but every once in a while you just take a minute and look out and it was awesome. So I would always try and bring my camera down. Uh, my first book was a National Geographic book called View From Above. Um, my second book, the, the big one that's out right now is called How to Astronaut. And uh, I talk in there a lot about what it was like to see the planet, the different things I noticed. Um, uh, you know, how it made me feel. Cause it's, it's kind of a big deal to leave your planet <laughs> and look back and think here I am in space and there's my planet over there. Uh, I would say that that sounds, sounds like an, an understatement, probably a big deal to leave your planet. But, but let's, but before we get into a few more of the details, just let's rewind a bit, talk about how you ended up doing this in, in the first place. I mean, you, you were, you were testing fighter jets, you're doing all sorts of things. Uh, but I imagine that the path to NASA is sort of a, a, a narrow path. Uh, not a lot of people end up doing what you did. So, so what happened? So I wanted to be an astronaut ever since I was a kid. You know, the first book I read was about Apollo. Um, I saw an IMAX movie called To Fly, which is amazing. It's still amazing to this day. It was one of the first IMAX movies. Um, I uh, read a book called The Right Stuff because a uh, an adult said, Hey, you should read this book. And so I did. And that kind of showed me the path. So it was something I wanted to do my whole life. Um, and then I ended up going to the air force Academy it was an F 16 pilot. Uh, and then I got into test pilot school. And then from there I was lucky. I got picked on my first try. I was the youngest pilot at NASA. Um, and so I went to uh, NASA way back in 2000. Way back in 2000, I guess now it is way back. Um, what about <laughs> when you yeah. were growing up, what was it about being an astronaut? I mean, I, I'm in music, you know, I'm, I'm in classical right. music, I'm a cellist. So I, I know in music, at least most of us who end up going into professionally have this moment where we're sort of grabbed by it. And right. it's not like you make a choice, it sort of chooses you. It Was it like that with you where you just felt pulled in? gravitationally, so to speak? Well, like I said, that I think I was hooked at age five when I read that book in kindergarten. You know, like the, the first book I could read was about Apollo. So I just grew up. It was with me from my earliest days. I had uh, pictures of the space shuttle and the F-16, ironically. I had the old red, white, and blue F-16 that first flew in 1974 and a space shuttle on my wall when I was in elementary school. And then when I grew up, I flew F-16s and then I flew the space shuttle. So you know, I'm really, really, really lucky that I got to do my dream as a as a kid. So I'm very thankful for that. But it was just something I was always into. There's such a rich history of space exploration. Uh, what did you set out to do? How much input did you have as to what you were all going to do? When, when they said seven months, did you just nod your head and, 
and say, okay, we're off? I mean, is this, what, what is the planning like? Take us, take us inside. Is there a, a, round, a round yeah, table so, discussion, you know? <laughs> well, there, you know, there's a big organization of managers and engineers that run the space station. Um, right now, NASA's human space flight is all about this international space station. And it has been since the nineties, um, in the two thousands, we were building it. Um, it took about 13 years to build. And then for the last decade, we've been operating it and it'll, it'll probably be in space for another decade or two, I would imagine. Um, and so it's been all about the space station. So these engineers and managers plan the missions. Uh, they generally come in six month blocks, although sometimes they're longer, sometimes they're shorter and they'll, they'll block off, you know, a set of experiments that you're going to do probably maybe a few major maintenance things to keep the space station up. Um, and then they'll assign crews a couple years out, usually two to three years before launch, uh, your boss comes and says, Hey, you know, you're going to be on this flight. And of course that's every astronaut stream. So the astronaut office is separate from all these engineers. We just sit around kind of jockeying for a position, waiting for the next flight. Um, and, and then once you get assigned, there's, you've got handlers, they schedule you. There, there's a whole list of hundreds of boxes that need to be checked before you launch. And so each astronaut has their own, they call it a training manager, whose job it is to make sure all of those boxes get checked before launch. So your emergency procedures training, your spacewalk training, you have to go to Europe and Japan and Russia for international partner module training, um, medical exams, all this kind of stuff has to be done. It's a really big matrix and it's kind of a complicated um, scheduling and, and maintenance exercise just to get an astronaut ready for spaceflight. And the How to Astronaut book that I just did is a collection of like 51 short essays about all different aspects of spaceflight. Uh, but I got a few essays in there about that process with, and hopefully in a funny and easy and not technical way. Um, I talk about those things. Well, I find the book very approachable. I, I have it here. I like the names of the chapters. I'm just going to read a few so people can hear. <laughs> That, Those were fun. That you really mean, yeah, yeah, that you really mean approachable. You're not just saying that, and then then we open it up, and it's 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 like a hieroglyphics. I mean, uh, so a few chapters. Uh, clothes make the astronaut packing for six months in space. Astronaut CrossFit, physical training for spaceflight, uh, dressing for success, a very complicated spacesuit. Uh, <laughs> the the ride uphill, staying cool when you're blasting off. So clearly, uh, you know, you you're, you're talking about sort of a daunting. Area, a daunting, intimidating, a foreign area, but you make it very approachable, and and I, I think the chapters are fun to just browse through. Talk about the international aspect to it. You mentioned before having to go to various countries. Uh, why is that? What do you do there? What's that all about? Well, that's a big part of it. It's the International Space Station. But real quick, back to the chapters thing. I gotta, <laughs> I gotta point out a couple of my favorite. The Vomit Comet, the first taste of weightlessness. That was one of my favorite. Uh, <laughs> one of my favorite chapters names <laughs> yes. um, okay, about so, so, getting used to zero G. And, okay, uh, so let's let's talk about. Oh, yeah. you want to name a few more? Then let's talk about them. They they were fun. I, I named some of them. Some friends of mine named some of them. My editor named some of them. So it was a. It took a village to name this book. But the chapter titles. Uh, my, the goal for the book is to make you laugh and say wow. And I make fun of like technical language, all of NASA's acronyms and stuff. I try and make fun of those as much as possible. So. It's supposed to be for you know anybody to read at the beach, read by the pool. Fifty-one chapters, but you can read them in any order. There's not you know it's not A to Z. It's kind of shotgun. So yeah, what a, the the, just the chapter titles really cracked me up. 
<laughs> so me too. So okay. So you mentioned the vomit comet, the first taste of weightlessness. To mention a few others that that you particularly like. Let me see here. When nature calls, um, there's a chapter about the the diaper, the red button. There's this button that. Well, I'll let you read the chapter, but it's it was surprised me when I saw the big red button that the launch control guy has at his console, and I asked him what that red button was for. Um, it was a long two hundred days. Uh, that's an an important <laughs> chapter. You could imagine the the kinds of things that you might miss down here on Earth. Um, marooned. What do you do if you're stranded in space? Uh, let me see. The art of putting on a spacesuit, which is actually a super complicated thing. Time travel. Einstein and the whole relativity thing. And that's a real thing, by the way. I had a I have a new podcast out called Down to Earth with Terry Verse and. Uh, one of my first guests was Katie Mack and we were, she's an astrophysicist. We were talking all about, um, time travel, which is pretty cool. Um, that's fascinating. Our, if, um, I'm not yeah. sure if you know, but I, I have, I have a, a thing for physicists and I've had just to add on, uh, Frank Wiltzek, uh, and I've had Sean Carroll and Lawrence Krauss. And I just love talking to physicists. I find them some of the most fascinating people, in the world, and it's incredible that uh, they're able to talk to me, who knows nothing about math and physics, but in a way that that I can understand and uh, and truly you know, humbling experience to talk to a great physicist. Oh yeah, I love I love that. I would have been a physics major if I could, but I did an exchange at the French Air Force Academy, and just the way the classes worked out, I had to be a math major, which I love math too. But um, I love that stuff; it's cool. Uh, anyway, so some of the some of the uh, the chapters, space tourism, what you need to know before signing up. Are we alone? Is there a God? And other minutiae. <laughs> My take on some minor <laughs> questions. So anyway, the the chapters, um, the titles were funny, I thought. <clears throat> okay, so so let, let's just <laughs> talk about a, a few of them. So, so you mentioned spacesuits. Okay, so chapter 39 is the art of putting on a spacesuit and you thought launch was complicated. <laughs> okay, so what, what's that? How hard is it? It's, it is difficult. The astronauts who go outside are EV, EV1 and EV2. That's the NASA acronym. So um, the leader is EV1 and the kind of his wingman is EV2. EV2. But the per astronaut on the inside that helps get them into the suits is called IV because they're inside. And the job of IV, getting you stuffed into the spacesuit and having it zipped up and connected and everything is super complicated. It's probably the hardest job. I was really glad I didn't have to do that because it was a really hard job. There's just, it, this big bulky couple hundred pound spacesuit comes in different pieces and parts. Um, if you don't put it together right, or if it doesn't click, you know, when you put your, <laughs> when you put it together, you don't want it to pop open while you're outside. Um, you'll have the rest of your life to try and get it connected again. And that probably won't work. So the, uh, th that job is just super important. There's a bunch of different layers. You've got your kind of long underwear and then this undergarment that has water zipped into it. It's cooling to keep you cool. Um, there's a radio, there's a jet pack with little small rockets on it. Um, the helmet, the gloves, it's just a complicated setup. Um, so that it's a big deal. It takes a few hours to get, to get, to get it on because, um, a big part of the process is breathing in pure oxygen and gradually lowering the pressure. If you just got in a spacesuit and dropped the pressure down so you go outside, you would get the bends, which is a problem that scuba divers have. So they have this long, gradual process of um, getting nitrogen out of your blood so that you don't get the bends when you reduce the pressure. 
So it takes a couple hours before you go outside. B-E-N-D-S? Is that is that the word like, you're saying? The bend? Yes, because you get bent over. So scuba divers years ago, when they first started scuba diving, they went down and they came up and then every once in a while they'd be in excruciating pain bent over because this nitrogen was coming out of their blood and getting wedged into their bones. And it's just a painful thing. Um, it can actually kill you if you get some of those nitrogen bubbles in your lungs or heart or brain uh, that can kill you. And so it's a really serious problem. And it happens when you go from really high pressure to really low pressure quickly. And the, you know, when you go to low pressure, things expand. Well, when you go outside, you start off at normal sea level pressure inside the space station. And when you crawl out of the hatch to go on a spacewalk, the spacesuit is dropped down to about one third atmospheric pressure. So you go from one atmosphere to one third atmosphere. And that lowering the pressure would cause nitrogen to come out of your blood. And, and just like a Coke, you know, the carbon dioxide fizzes and the gas comes out of uh, fizzy drinks. Uh, that gas comes out of your blood and, and could cause serious problems. That's what the bends is. It's common, but well, it's not common, but it would be common for scuba divers if they didn't know what they were doing. And uh, we, we have to treat spacewalking the same way, which is probably something, you know, a lot of folks don't know about. So you put on the long underwear, you put on layer after layer of, of stuff. And then when we, do you, you put on the diaper yeah. first? Okay. Okay. So you want to take us through the whole thing? <laughs> well, sure. Yeah. Well, so the diapers, number one. Um, and you use diapers for launch and landing and also for spacewalking. Um, and we, Americans learned that after Alan Shepard was stuck on the launch pad for hours and hours and they hadn't thought it was only a 15 minute flight. So they didn't think he'd have to worry about it. But, uh, there's a funny scene in the movie to write stuff about that. But the, uh, you know, you get your diaper, then you have just thin cotton long underwear, like you're going skiing. And then you have this bigger, uh, long underwear called LCVG. And that stands for long underwear with water tubes sewn into it. Um, and then you start, and then you crawl into the spacesuit itself, which has a hut, which is the upper half. It has a LTA, which is the lower half, like your pants. Um, and then it has boots and then it has gloves. And for a guy like me, I have a really big, um, chest and I'm not super flexible. So I'd have to hyperextend my elbow to crawl into the spacesuit and especially in training, I'd all, I would take the arms off, slide into this chest upper torso thing, and then put the arms back on so I didn't have to hyperextend my elbows. And what do you um, mean crawl in? Well, you get underneath, it's on a stand. It's like attached to the stand because the whole spacesuit weighs a couple hundred pounds on earth. It's a massive, big, thick thing. So you get underneath of it and you stick your hands overhead like you're a Superman. And then you kind of crawl and wiggle your way and and you stand up. And as you stand up, you get pushed up into this chest pack. Um, but you, you know, your head pops out and your arms pop out and it's a lot of work and on the ground doing it, it's like you're huffing and puffing and sweating by the time you get through it. It's so much, it's such a painful process. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's, uh, it's, it, I joke that it's not really designed for humans. Um, we <laughs> make it as tight as possible because the bigger it is, the harder it is to move. Uh, you want it to fit you like a glove, but the downside of that is then you can't breathe. So the hut comes in a medium, large, and extra large size. And I always took the extra large. I, I tried a large on twice in my, in 10 years. Um, and the first time it was really bad. It was not good. I didn't fit in it. I couldn't breathe. It was just not a good situation. 
So then years later, I'm going to fly in space again. And they, they want, can you fit a large, if the extra large breaks, can you get the large out and try and fit in it? And I tried to get in it and the, and the, the trainers just said, look, you're no, you're not allowed. If the extra large breaks, you can't do a spacewalk. Like we're just not going to let you do it. Cause it just doesn't, <laughs> I was just too big for it. Um, and they were serious. I mean, they were going to, what they were going to ground you if that, if that happened. Well, or... they, they, thankfully there was an extra large in space. And so that's the one I use, but, um, had there not been, I just wouldn't have been able to do a spacewalk because I just don't fit in it. It's, it's too, and it's not like it's flexible. The Apollo spacesuits were flexible. It was fabric, but the space station ones have this there's metal rings where the joints rotate and there is fabric, but there's also really hard, rigid plastic, you know, so that it doesn't flex at all. Like there's no bending. Uh, it's kind of like an iron maiden. So, um, yeah, the size of the spacesuits is an important, important detail. Why would they be different? The uh, Apollo and the international space station suits. So the Apollo ones, first of all, they were made really quickly. I mean, you know, first, human flight to Neil and Buzz on the moon was eight and a half years. So they had to make that stuff really quickly. They also had to make it light and big metal rings and hardened plastic stuff is heavy. So just using a fabric is lighter and weight is super important when you're going to the moon in the 1960s. Um, and then they only did one or a couple of spacewalks. The current spacesuits will use them for a decade and they may do tens or many tens of spacewalks. So they have to be more durable. And uh, so NASA decided to make the, the space shuttle and ISS spacesuits more durable to last longer and also be safer, you know, harder to rip and harder to tear. Um, but the price of that safety and durability is uh, wear and tear on the human body. And a lot of astronauts have had orthopedic injuries, especially torn labrums and sh shoulder problems, but also arm problems. So yeah, there there's a um, there's a trade-off for making them safer. I guess it's maybe more comfortable to ride in a car without a seatbelt on, but it's probably better to wear a seatbelt for your safety. Exactly. <laughs> it's a, that's a good analogy. Only times like ten or times a hundred. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Music has a, a long history in space, actually, and there was that famous package sent into space that had the Beatles and Beethoven, all that stuff early on, and and I imagine. Oh that right that um, right. you have to listen to something in space. And I'll also ask you what you listen to down here um, at your house in Texas. But, but what do you listen to right. in space? I mean, do, do you, how do you listen to music? So on my shuttle flight, I was just too busy. They gave us like the original iPod. This was 10 years ago. And I would listen to it at nighttime. Uh, but in space, they gave me an iPod Nano, a little 16 gig iPod Nano, which is like the size of a couple of quarters. It's a really small thing, but the way, and I just gave them my iPhone and they took the music off of it and put it on this iPod nano, but the way they did it, it wasn't organized. And so I literally, I could just like listen to all of my music, but I couldn't listen to eighties music or rock and roll or whatever. So I've got, you know, a lot of rock. I've got dance music. I've got Christian music. I've got country music. I've got classical. I, and I even had some uh, like Russian language training audio clips on my thing. So if I, whenever I use the the iPod Nano, I would just get total random music mix, which is kind of funny, but it wasn't really that useful. Um, another, uh, I had a, a lady named Beth Turner who was my family support person, and she um, uh, 
got my Pandora account and she would just record three hour blocks off of my different Pandora radio stations. So actually that's how I listen to music. I would just play Pandora radio stations and I have a very wide range, just about every type of music, eclectic, um, uh, you know, type, but, um, that's how I would listen. And you could either listen on headphones. We had like some Bose noise canceling headphones in our sleep station. So little crew quarters, you shut the door and fall asleep. Or, um, we had little Bose, uh, uh, speakers. So you could bring those around, plug them in to a laptop and then go on the laptop into like your, uh, common hard drive and listen to your music on a speaker while you worked. So, you know, if you were in a group, everybody would have to agree, but usually you're just working by yourself. So I just plug in my speaker to the laptop and listen to whatever I was listening to while I was doing my procedure. And does that feel fairly normal? I mean, does it feel earthly <laughs> in a way to listen to music like that? Yeah, it was, it was actually good. It was nice. Um, it was really nice. It just kind of made the, uh, made the um, day pass by, kind of brought you back to earth. Uh, at nighttime, I spent about a month listening to Hans Zimmer's uh, Interstellar soundtrack, which I think mm, is the best mm -hmm. soundtrack of all time. I still listen to that now. Terrific. Um, uh, it's amazing. Um, and uh, I, the Russians sent up Sounds from Earth. So I, there's a chapter about that, I think, in here. I talk about it in How to Astronaut, uh, listening to the sound of rain for a month. It was amazing. Um, that month, I actually dreamt of life on Earth, which is pretty cool. That is pretty cool. And uh, for all the people who are wondering, what I referenced a minute ago was the Voyager Golden Record. Yes. Uh, yeah, launched in 1977. Uh, and there were two records, and Carl Sagan was the head of the committee that chose mm -hmm. what music went on the records. And they did right. everything from Beethoven to the Beatles to, to Gamelan music from Indonesia to, I mean, huge, I think 120 pieces or something like that. Incredible range. It's amazing. Music. Amazing. Yeah. And and he, he said, Sagan said that the spacecraft will be encountered and the record played only if there are advanced spacefaring civilizations in interstellar space. Yeah. But the launching of this bottle, in quotes, into the cosmic ocean, in quotes, says something very hopeful about life on this planet. What, what do you, isn't that, a, it just, it's a kind of heartwarming message in a way, isn't it? It's amazing. Um, I think it's actually his wife, Andrean, actually helped him out select the music and to, to say that we're sending this, you know, plaque, their, their plaque was really cool too. It, it tried to describe where earth was around the sun that any intelligent civilization could look at the plaque and figure it out. But, you know, we're, we're sending out this message of hope that, you know, we're, we come in peace. The, the plaque on the Apollo 11 moon lander had a similar sentiment. You know, we came in peace for all mankind. Um, and so, yeah, that, that says a lot and space often brings that out. And I actually made the, I make that point in my, in my book, but there's a lot of bad things happening on earth and the, uh, uh, the space exploration tends to bring out the best. And so when you think of the benefits of the space station or other programs, there's the technical engineering stuff. There's the science that we learn from it. But I think the most important thing is international relations and the way we can get along. It kind of shows people how people can and should get along. And not just the international relations, but it's also the, the perhaps I imagine the, the interest in, in patriotism and a common goal that, that we have for a country rallies around a, 
a space voyage. Don't you think that's that's something where are we missing that now? Well, space has been kind of back in the news the last few years. It's 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 one of the positive things. Of course, the Mars lander just landed on Mars. Um, and China sent a probe there, but the, the coolest probe, I think, is from the UAE, the Arab uh, Hope Mars mission that they sent um, to have, uh, you know, the Arab world build a satellite and send it to Mars. That that was a really good thing for the Middle East and not just the UAE, but for the whole Arab world. So, yeah, these these space missions can can bring a lot of hope for sure. Plus, it's just cool seeing that lander, the rover land on Mars was pretty amazing. Yeah, that, that that was that was. So, um, uh, a lot of people are going to be thinking. So, you get into this. I just want to rewind to a bit of the the details. You get into the suit. Are you tested rigorously for claustrophobia? I imagine that's that's a huge. I mean, it's 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 a, a silly question, but how rigorously do they say? I mean, it's not like when, you know if you're going for a, a a cat scan, they say you're claustrophobic and you check the box no, and then you're good to go. <laughs> When when I showed up to interview, you know, I wanted to be an astronaut. I came in for an interview. They put us in this little ball. They said it was like a rescue ball. So if the shuttle wasn't working, you, they could put you in the ball and transfer you to a different spaceship. Um, but it was just a it was just a claustrophobia thing to see if you freaked out. Um, and on the shuttle, it wasn't that bad. I mean, getting in the spacesuit is claustrophobic in and of itself. Um, but if you know, I was a pilot, so that was never a big deal for me. Until I got into that large hut, that was that was tight. <laughs> but um, the the Soyuz is really tight. That, I was in the Soyuz spacesuit, and right before the Soy, Soyuz is a small Russian capsule. Right before it hits the ground, it does this thing called stroking, where the 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 chair that you're in, the couch that you're in, moves up about a foot off the ground. So when you hit the ground, the couch on the shock absorbers has a little bit of give to it. Uh, and when that happens, man, the the control panel is right in front of you. You're in this bulky spacesuit. You're strapped down really tight and you're smashed against the wall. I mean, if there's ever a time to be, have a claustrophobia panic attack, that was it. Um, but uh, I didn't. So thankfully. <laughs> <laughs> Did, does anybody ever, or are you so rigorously examined that it's impossible? No, nothing's impossible. I, I wouldn't say that um, nobody has ever had a panic attack. I, I haven't heard of one, but you know, we've been flying in space now for sixty years, and um, so who knows? I'm sure at some point there's been a few hundred people, over five hundred people, have flown in space. So I'm sure some folks have had problems. Uh, luckily, I didn't, but you know, you never know. <laughs> you don't want to. You don't want to ride in a capsule if you have a problem with claustrophobia. I'll say that. <laughs> okay, well, I'll keep that in mind. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, chapter four, the one you talked about, is the vomit comet—the first taste of yeah. weightlessness. Uh, yeah. What is what is this all about? So, we have this airplane, or we had, unfortunately, it's gone. Um, uh, called the vomit comet, and it's an airliner. The pilots would pull up about 40, 45 degrees nose high, and then push over. And while they're pushing over, the airplane's pitching down, pitching down, and you're floating. They push over at exact right amount to make you float. And then you get to about 30 degrees nose low, and then you pull back. And then you get smashed to the floor. He pulls up under about two Gs. So two times your weight is what it feels like. So you're smashed to the ground. And then he pushes forward, and then you float. And you're floating for 20 seconds. And you go up and down and up and down. It's like a porpoise. 
Um, and it's really cool and it's a way to experience weightlessness. Um, and it, it was important for me to have done that. Um, it's, it just gets you used to floating for more than one, you know, dump off a diving board, you can float for one second, but, um, the vomit comet in an airplane is really the only way to do that. It used to be a KC-135, NASA shut down the program and we contracted out to a commercial company called Zero G in a 727 or a DC-9, we had a DC-9 um, that was a government. And then we went to the 727. And I don't think NASA is doing that anymore, which is a real loss. It's unfortunate. The Europeans have one in an Airbus. Uh, the Russians have one in an Aleutian IL-76. So there's different types of vomit comets, but they're all airliners. And they all have the pilot push over. And then you get 20 seconds of floating, which is pretty awesome. And then you, you write here... I'm quoting here. I made it for about 10 parabolas before tossing my cookies. There's a funny, <laughs> which I've never heard that one. I like it. It's charming. Uh, there's a funny picture of me kissing the ground surrounded by my classmates after that flight. Yeah. <laughs> well, so here's the deal. And I'm still not that I'm jealous or not that I'm mad about it still. I'm not holding a grudge, but we all agreed, you know, there's, there's a saying better living through chemistry. So take the sickness medicines because also it's the Houston summertime and you're in this 1960s airplane. It smells like 30 years of barf because they fly college students and everybody's barfing and it's jet fuel and barf and Houston humidity, right? So it's miserable. And <laughs> if you take the medicine, I, for 15 years after that, I would take the medicine and I always, it was always good. It was never a problem. But on that first one, we all kind of swore this pact with each other as new astronaut as ASCANs, astronaut candidates. They'd want to make you feel good about yourself, so you're an ASCAN. Um, so we're going to do it without the medicine. And we all kind of looked at each other, all right, let's do the, the first one we'll do without the medicine. And then I think all of my classmates kind of snuck off and took the medicine anyway. Uh, but I actually I actually did it without the medicine, and I barfed my head off. So that was the last time I did that. I used the medicine after that, and it was always good. So how close is the simulation uh, from the pilot uh, in, in one of those planes to, to what it actually feels like? The NASA pilots were really good at it. I mean, they could get to zero G and that, that's what it feels like because you are floating. I mean, you're, you're basically falling and that's what, that's what weightlessness is, is just falling. Um, and so they, they were very good at it. And you can look at the data, you know, because if the pilot's a little unsteady, it, it goes a little bit of G, not a little negative, a little positive, a little negative, a little positive. But the NASA guys... We're really good at just nailing it, um, it right at zero G. Can you talk a little bit about time in space? Does it feel very different? What is it like to go to bed and, and wake up? How much do you sleep? What is a day like? The basic time in space is GMT, so London time. Uh, so everybody sets their watch to that. Otherwise, you're going around there 16 times a day, and, you, and you'd have 16 sunrises and sunsets every day that that would not work well so you know you we have a morning meeting every day with all the different mission control centers around earth about 7 30 gmt then you work it's about a 12-hour day and then you have an evening meeting a conference call with all the same mission control centers uh, and then you get up again and do it the next day uh, they try and make the weekends saturday you got some scheduled work but nothing too much and they try and keep Sundays free. So that's when you catch up. That's when you call your family, um, catch up on email. Um, for me, it was pictures. I would try and get pictures done. Uh, 
so those sun and sleep. I also Sundays I would not set my alarm. I had an Omega X thirty three Speedmaster watch, and that was my alarm for seven months when I was in space. So on Sundays I would turn the alarm off, um, and just sleep. And sometimes I'd sleep till noon. It was really nice. But in terms of the way, the more philosophical the the way it feels. I mean, all the things that you have here on Earth. You turn on the radio, or maybe the morning news, or or you meet a friend for a coffee outside, outside uh, in the afternoon, you know, something, all, all, all these things that sort of define the day. I mean, is, is all that's gone up there, right? Or do you try to recreate it? Uh, how do you even know what's morning? Yeah, so you have to look at your watch. Like I said, look down at your Omega watch and see the, <laughs> the time clicking by because otherwise, that's a great point. It, it's, you'll, you'll lose track. There's a couple of things about time. So there's just how do you do your daily schedule? There's also relativity. There's a chapter in How to Astronaut about relativity. I'm actually seven milliseconds younger than I would have been had I not uh, been going so fast. So thanks to Einstein, I aged a little bit slower. I thought you looked um, pretty young in that picture in, yeah. in the book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, healthy, healthy, live, clean living. But um, <laughs> And then there's the, you look at the earth and it's like, man, that thing's been around for billions of years. It's going to be around for billions of years. And it just puts you... At, this kind of cosmic perspective. I, I made a film, a short film a few months ago called Cosmic Perspective about space photography and how that your perspective changes. Um, but those are, those are things that are very much on your brain um, when you're going through, uh, when you're living in space, you know, the, there's the daily minutia and then there's the man, there's a big picture here and I probably shouldn't get so uptight about stuff like I tend to do. <laughs> Seven months at the International Space Station. How much work was there to do? What What were some of the tasks? I mean, you, you were the chief of it for a while. What were yeah. some of the tasks that, that you had to do? A and did you set the agenda or, or did you have sort of a binder of things that, mm -hmm. that they sent up with you? Right. So I was the commander, but the, the missions are run by the ground. So the flight director is kind of in charge of the mission. Uh, they're in mission control in Houston and uh, they work eight hour shifts. So it's constantly turning over above them is the station program. And they set out the long-term objectives. Like you're going to do these experiments during this mission. And then we need to, you know, do these repair tasks and they give the flight directors, the, the jobs that need to happen. And then there's a scheduler that kind of plugs them into our daily schedule. And then they, you know, make sure that we get those things done every day. So we have some input into that and there's constant communication between the commander and the flight director about, you know, what the priorities are and what the future looks like. Um, but at the end of the day, Houston sends us up a schedule and we execute it. We just get, you know, they, they fill out our outlook and we, we do go from one thing to the next. Um, so it's very much, you know, 99% driven by the ground. Sometimes the crew will have an idea, hey, can we flip this or can we do that? Or they'll give us, hey, we need you guys to do these things, but you can do them on your own time. And that flexibility and scheduling helps. But uh, for the most part, it's um, they send us a schedule and we do it. And what would something be? I mean, I mean, don't be afraid to get too technical. Then I'll just say put that in in plainer English, right. but, but what, what could a daily task entail? <laughs> well, right. So there's, I wrote chapters about this in the, in the how to astronaut book, but 
every day you get exercise. So NASA schedules you for two and a half hours of exercise a day on a weightlifting machine, a treadmill and a bike. So that was super important. And I actually did that almost every day of of my 200 day mission. And you've talked Um, about before that, that you can't do, um, normal exercises in the space station. You, you, you can't do bench pressing and squatting like you would at the Gold's Gym down the block or something, right? Right. I, I talk about that. We, we have a weightlifting machine. Now, it's not actually weightlifting. There's a vacuum tube that generates the force. But you can do squats and bench presses and deadlifts and the basic high school football workout. You can do that in space. It's just not lifting weight. It's using a vacuum to generate force. So it's kind of like a Bowflex machine, but it's really, really good. And after 200 days, they measured my bone density beforehand and afterwards, and mine was 0.0% changed. So the exercise I did kept my muscles and my bones in, in really good, healthy shape. Uh, most people lose some. I was I was an outlier. I, my body is just made to fly in space, but um, uh, those exercises really are super important because they keep us um, in shape. So... Exercising is one thing, just maintenance there every day, something's going to break. You got to replace a computer or some piece of equipment for the water recycling system or the air conditioning system. Um, uh, there's science experiments. So some days it's medical or, or physics or, uh, materials or combustion, whatever the science experiment you're doing, you have to do that. Cargo ships come and go. So you need to unpack and pack these things constantly. Uh, there's spacewalks that you have to get ready for. There's interviews that you have to get ready for. So every day is something different, which is really nice, but some combination of all those different tasks. Um, there's medical exams that you have to do on yourself. I was basically a guinea pig for 200 days. So all of that stuff uh, really fills up your day. You talk about medical exams and maintenance and tests and all that, not to sound glib at all, but, but how much more is there to learn that that we haven't learned. I, I don't mean about space. I don't mean about the, yeah. the, the laws, but I mean, you know, in the space station, in the, I mean, what right. medical tests could we possibly have to do on you that we don't, <laughs> we don't know yet. <laughs> Ironically, there's a lot, but we're not doing them. So the basics <laughs> of the space station is check the box. People can live and work in space for a long time and be healthy. And that's because of the exercise protocol. So we have learned that that's really important. Um, they're going to start sending up, smaller, more compact workout machines to see if we can use those and come back healthy. Um, because, you know, going to Mars, we can't have these giant massive machines that we have on the ISS. So that'll be an important science discovery. Um, some astronauts have had problems with eyes. When I was there, we did a lot of experiments to check on eye health. Uh, I think the biggest unknown is how radiation affects us. And unfortunately we're not studying that now. And so I'm always trying to prod them a little bit to let's study how DNA is affected and so on, because that's important. That's the really limiting factor for going to Mars, and we're not studying it. You're a relatively young person, and uh, you've retired from NASA. Uh, did you think about doing more? Did, does it, is it normal to retire at your age? I mean, what was it? Was it a tough decision? You know, it, it was pretty normal. I'd been there for 16 years, and and I think 10 is kind of a normal career. My age group had to wait a long time before we flew because of a lot because of the Columbia accident, and NASA had hired too many astronauts, and uh, the and then they weren't assigning rookies because the missions were so complicated. 
So kind of the rich got richer and the unflown rookies didn't get to fly. So all these things compiled. Um, I flew once on the shuttle and I wanted to fly again after that. So I did the long duration 200 day mission. And when I came back, my boss said, Hey, if you want to fly again, it's going to be a five year wait. And I said, you know what? I'm in my forties. There's things I want to do in life. You know, I've put my family through this once already. How many times do I need to have them wonder if I'm going to die or not? Um, and I'm not doing anything new. I could go back and do the same exact thing I've already done. Uh, by that point, it was obvious that the moon program wasn't going to happen um, anytime soon. And we certainly weren't going to Mars anytime soon. So I kind of put all those things together and I just said, you know what? I want to, I want to write, I want to do film and TV. There's other, I want to make a complete change of direction of my career. And I can do that, you know, in my forties with a certain amount of energy. If I wait until my late fifties, I'll have a different amount of energy. And if I wait till I'm 60, I'm going to have a very different level of energy. So I had kind of done everything there was to do and I was ready to try something new. And I was kind of ready to be done with the government after 30 years of working in the government. I got a paycheck every two weeks. I have retirement and health. Everything was covered, which is really nice. And when you step out into the private industry, nothing's covered. Like you got to, you got to kill if you want to eat. And I really like that challenge of kind of moving into the private sector and having to fend for myself there. Uh, that, that was a challenge I really wanted to step up to. So that was my thinking, uh, when I left. You said you're from Maryland. I know you live in Texas now. How, how did you end up in Texas? And, um, by the way, was everything okay? You were speaking now near the end of February and obviously Texas right. went through a big, uh, power outage and freezes and, and everything. So were you, uh, affected? Uh, so that question first, uh, yeah, God, it's been it, last week anyway, it was brutal. It was freezing for a week and that never happened. That was really a crazy storm. Thankfully my house kept power. I don't know why a lot of my friends lost it and I was offering to everybody, Hey, I got a house here. If you want a place to stay warm. Um, but that was a really bad storm and well across the whole country really. Um, but Texas, especially because we, we just weren't ready. We have a deregulated system. And because of that, they, they just don't, they didn't winterize the plants and the natural gas and, and the coal plants uh, the way other states do. And so people lost power and a lot of people died. It, it was really awful. Um, so that, you know, the reason I live in Texas is because of George Washington, because he made this government system that has congressional districts and uh and senate and senatorial seats and texas had a senior senator named lyndon johnson and uh during the apollo era you know he was president when we landed on the moon or when during a lot of apollo and and they named the lyndon johnson space center here in houston texas so uh, i moved here 20 years ago more than when i became an astronaut and uh, i've been here ever since i like it it's you know i've the cost of living is really low. I got a great house. It's nice people. And there's two in international airports uh, within an hour of my house. So I, I was doing a lot of traveling, speaking and consulting. So the last three or four years, I was traveling constantly until COVID hit. And then that came to a grinding halt about a year ago. Uh, so, and it's been really nice to be home. I've written a couple books. I've gotten, a, I have a couple TV and film projects that we're pitching now. So having time has kind of allowed me to do some creative things. But the reason I live in Houston is thanks to George Washington. That's what I say. 
I like that answer a lot when you started talking about congressional districts and senators. Yeah. I, I thought you were going to say, and I moved here to run for Senate um, from the state of Texas. <laughs> <laughs> but I people ask me that probably on a daily basis and because I'm really passionate about politics in part thanks to my space flight. And, uh, you know, I, I think I'd rather just stick a fork in my eye than go through that pain. <laughs> but uh, it's important. Yeah. It's important. Well, yeah. I, who, who wouldn't want to vote for an astronaut, you know? Yeah. <laughs> you Everybody loves an astronaut until you have a political opinion and then, you know, the hate starts flying. So, <laughs> um. so you know, one thing you, you mentioned earlier was the international cooperation, the, the whole collaborative feeling. And it was sort of moving to hear you talk. Could you just expound a little more about what it is like to work with people from other countries, work with top professionals from other countries to study foreign languages. I, too, have a love for foreign languages. I've been studying foreign languages since I was a little kid. I went to kindergarten right. in Jerusalem, so I, I was fluent in Hebrew at a very young age, and from there it was just, you know, I couldn't get enough foreign language. But but what is it? You know, learning foreign languages, it's such a wonderful way for anybody in the world to learn about another culture, to interact with other people. What does that give you in terms of the the richness it adds to you as a person as you approach a mission? Yeah, I think um, one of the things I'd like to do in, in life is promote uh, foreign exchanges for, for exchange students. Um, my daughter is majoring in French, so I'm really proud of that because I was a French minor in college. Uh, you know, some people like it and some people don't. I get that. But uh, it in America, we have these two oceans and we just tend to... I mean, America is big enough. You could spend your whole life traveling here and and never need to leave. Um, most of the world is not like that. And we tend to think that the whole world kind of revolves around us and stuff. And America is really important. It's the most important country in the world. But in my during my Air Force career, I spent a lot of time in Asia and Europe and the Middle East. And um, America was always like the big dog, the, the biggest country, the most modern country, the most advanced country. Well, since I've left NASA in the last few years, and I've had it, I've been to all seven continents in the last couple of years. Um, there's a lot of countries that are way ahead of us in a lot of things. You know, you go to East Asia, to, to to Japan or Korea or China, and those cities are modern and very advanced. And it's like, wow, there's nothing in America this you know big or new. Um, you, you, there's a lot of you go to. The, I just spent five weeks in Dubai that is a modern and advanced place. And so I think as Americans, it's important to realize that there is a rest of the world and they're doing some amazing things and we shouldn't be overly confident because there's no such thing as manifest destiny. Like there's no guaranteed law that America will always be number one and throughout human history, number one never lasts. And so we need to have that kind of fire under our feet to get us motivated to do better. Um, and also I think the world does a lot better when America leads, uh, it, as long as we're leading, promoting democracy and promoting free market economies and stuff, we can't be promoting the dictators and the authoritarians of the world because they're, that trend has been really worrisome the last five to 10 years. A lot of countries have moved in that direction and America needs to offer the beacon of hope in the other direction of freedom and so on. And so our foreign policy, it, most Americans don't care that much about. As long as we're not going to war, they're happy. 
and we just don't think about it, but it's super important because the economy is global, like it or not, the economy is global, like it or not, there's good guys and bad guys out there and we need to cultivate the right international environment. Our kids will live in a better world if those American values are furthered and our kids will have a much worse world when they're not. And so the foreign affairs and foreign languages are really important. I couldn't agree more with everything you just said so eloquently. And, and I think for, for all the people listening who are skeptical of foreign language or who are intimidators or, or, or something, it's all I can say is, is even if you learn eight words in German before your trip to Berlin and you only use those eight words, it'll be worth it. If you learn how to order a coffee, you know, if you have to spend two weeks learning that, it's still worth it because... <laughs> You know, you can make all the mistakes you want, but people in other countries love, generally love to see that you're making some sort of effort to say two words in, in their language. And it's it's really fun. And it, I hope that people at any age, at any state in their lives are not so intimidated by foreign languages. I mean, no one's saying you're going to be able to read Proust in French or Tolstoy in Russian right off the bat. <laughs> right. But, uh, you know, the, the little simple things can really change and, and up your experience in, with, with a foreigner. It, it, especially as an American, like when I, I, can, I can speak French and I'm okay in Russian and it blows them away when they, when I start speaking to them in a foreign language, Americans just don't speak foreign languages. And so it really goes a long way. And whenever I visit a country, I always try and learn a few words, like you, like you said, and that it goes so far uh, on the space station, we had um, American, European and Russian crew. And when I was commander, I made an effort to try and have dinner with the Russian guys every night. Um, and I made lifelong friends with them. And, and I, I love Russia. I love the Russian people. I love the culture. They would teach me bad words and stuff in Russian at night while we we're eating dinner. And we had we had so much fun doing that. Um, and that's uh, that went a long, long, long way to building team morale and, and esprit de corps for sure. Wonderful culture, wonderful people, incredible art, incredible history incredible science from Russia. So I, I, I hope people can also separate the people of a country from the government because they're not always yeah. the same. They're they're not the same at all. It's so unfortunate. So, so many of my Russian friends are just distraught about what's happening there. Um, you know, I think one of the litmus tests for a government is how they treat journalists. Um, a good friend of mine is a, a Chinese journalist named Chang Lei, and I always bring her name up just so she stays in the public eye. The Chinese uh, Communist Party arrested her about six months ago, accused her of being a spy. She's an Australian citizen. Her, she's Chinese, but with an Australian passport. And so she was one of their top business reporters. Like imagine your favorite CNN or Fox News reporter just getting arrested and disappeared and they deleted all the videos of her off the internet. She just is gone and no one's talked to her. Wow. And th you know this kind of thing, and this is happening. This She's not the only one. Obviously, a lot of people in China are getting this kind of treatment. Um, in Russia, since Putin has taken over, several hundred journalists have been killed. Um, not arrested, but killed. Um, you know, during COVID, doctors started getting dizzy. I guess they were falling off of hospital roofs. Um, but you can look at how countries treat journalists. Do, do they send hit squads to kill them and dismember them? And, you know, th that's a good litmus test when you're wondering if it's the right government or not. That doesn't mean the culture is not awesome. I love China. I have a lot of Chinese friends. Um, unfortunately, I don't think I can go back there now because of what's happened to Chiang Lei. Um, I love Russia a lot, but 
you know, when they, when they poison and try and kill a political opposition leader, how safe are we when we're in Russia? You know, what, what might they do to anybody? So it's important to distance the government from the people and the culture. I know some Iranians that are just awesome. Uh, you know, Persians are some of the nicest and most friendly and, and smartest and best educated people on earth. But, you know, unfortunately, government, the goal of government is to keep itself in power and enrich itself unless it's a really high functioning democracy. And that's why democracy is so important. Uh, this is kind of my big lesson that I learned from being in space. I mean, I love space, but we're all down here on Earth. So we got to figure out how to make things work better on our planet. <laughs> indeed, indeed, it's true that in Russia, a lot of people tend to fall out of balconies or through the glass. Yeah. And uh, uh, we had a, a long, detailed conversation with Michael McFall, who was a longtime ambassador from the U.S. to Russia, who's banned from Russia right now, but uh, a few months back on this show. And of course, we spoke about Navalny and, and all of that. Now there's a sort of show trial there. And uh, it is it is sad and predictable to watch at the same time, because you sort of know what's going to happen next. Yeah, I know Ambassador McFull. He was the ambassador when I was training for my last flight. And I actually, <laughs> I just reached out to him to invite him on my podcast. So I don't know if he'll be able to make it or not, but he's he's a great, uh, he's a great guy. He's an example of why it's so important to have smart, professional people running our foreign policy. Because, yeah, the, anyway, the, the foreign service is great. If you have any young people listening and they're trying to decide what they want to do when they grow up, uh, our foreign service... Um, Core has had a rough few years, and we need good foreign service officers to go work in embassies and and promote America's interests around the world. Um, that's a great career for sure. I'm so glad you said that. I think we should put a finer point on that because we, we always talk about, well, what can we do better? We have certain ideals, and, and ideals right. are ideals for a reason because we strive for them. When, you know, when I play a cello concert, I, I have certain musical ideals that I try to reach, and often... Right. You know, often I don't, but the point is you try. You have that bar super high and you try to reach it. And that's what foreign officers, I think what you're saying, try to do when they go to an embassy in China or something like that. We, we're not perfect. America's not perfect. But we have ideals that we're trying to reach and trying to better right. ourselves. Right. And that's what I think one of the best parts of America is we're willing to admit our imperfections and try and improve on them. Uh, other countries just try and hide them behind propaganda. Um so it's, I'll agree. And, you know, the, our government, the system of government that we have is awful. It's messy. It's inefficient. Um, it's just better than the other alternatives that, <laughs> you know, the, the old, the old kind of joke about democracy. I, I talk about this and how to astronaut looking back on earth and you could see city lights at night and you can see where the economies are going well and where they're not going well. Um, you could see a few military borders that were really striking between India and Pakistan but the most striking one was North and South Korea. South Korea is this bright, vibrant, functioning, amazing place. And North Korea is just a black hole with a little white dot where Pyongyang was. And when I saw that, it, it hit me after seeing it a few times that I, that I was seeing politics. Like here's a view from outer space and you could see political systems that work and political systems that don't work. And that's what kind of really struck me to, man, you know, we need to promote um, these proper political functioning uh, forms of government, because that's how life on earth gets better or worse, depending on which direction you go. And unfortunately, America's brand is pretty low. I've got a lot of friends from a lot of different countries and um, America does not have the, uh, 
the kind of global cachet that we had in years past. And, you know, we stood up to the Soviet Union and we stood for freedom and democracy. And, and we, that goodwill towards us is really gone. And I think we need to work to, to get that back and to show the world that, hey, we're still America. We still have our core values and we're going to, you know, following our leadership is going to point in the right direction. We need to make sure that we do that. And I don't know if your audience is American or international, but probably a mix, but, um, a mix. It's a mix. Yeah. 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 But as, as an American, that's my, that's my hope for, for the country. And of course, uh, the economy and of course, COVID is important and there, there's lots of domestic issues that are important, but the international set of issues is important too. Uh, cause that kind of changes the course of human history when we get it right or when we get it wrong. When everything opens back up, which I hope it will eventually, I think it will eventually, uh, yeah. let's say you're going to start traveling, you'll start lecturing and doing all, all this stuff. Then you're, you're going to go to a concert. What concert are you going to go to your first big live <laughs> concert? <laughs> I would love that. You know, the last, I like the last concerts I went to were the psychedelic furs and Duran Duran. I went to some eighties concerts. Um, here in Houston a couple years ago. U2 was here too, but I missed that one. Um, so I don't know. That's a that's a great question. Maybe Dua Lipa. I want to see Dua Lipa. Dua Lipa. You're not the first person to, to bring Dua Lipa up on this show. And um, <laughs> so I, I, I wish you good luck getting to that whenever it happens. Meanwhile, thank God for YouTube and, and the rest of the internet to have great music Amen. at our disposal I, I, i'll recommend a little i don't know what should i recommend to maybe uh go put on a Mozart, mozart opera the marriage of figaro there's nothing happier than the first uh scene of the marriage of figaro act one i listened to the marriage of figaro last week i love that uh, and there houston wow. has a great yeah i literally did we were well we were talking about bugs bunny um but so we i put on the marriage of figaro one of my friends has a little 10 year old and they don't, they don't have the cultural, uh, uh, luck of having growing up with Bugs Bunny the way we did. So <laughs> Bugs Bunny was amazing. That was a great way to learn classical music for kids back in the day. Those cartoons were amazing. I'm glad you listened to Figaro. There's, I, I think I may put it on, you know, right after this too. I, I, I I'm going <laughs> to do that. I'm going to put it on. Yeah. <laughs> I'll send you over one of my favorite recordings, a piece that is so alive and, and brimming with vitality and, and freshness and I know, I've been listening to it since I was probably eight or nine years old and I'm in my early 30s now and it, it gets better every time right classical music is so amazing and I I, I wish I knew it better uh it, it's something that I think kids need to be exposed to more because it's just it's it's you know forever and they I, I had a chance to speak in Vienna a couple of years ago and uh Austria and we were in this unbelievable room where the speech was. It was a, it was like a sales meeting. I was, you know, doing a motivational speech for a company, but it was the room they told me when I was done, they said, Hey, this is where Beethoven first played, um, you know, some of his biggest, uh, works. It was so crazy to be in the room where Beethoven first played, you know, his symphony or whatever. Yeah. And yeah. It, I wrote a blog. When I got back, I wrote a blog. I, I used to write a blog, but now I, I spend my writing time writing books. But um, uh, I'm, And my podcast is kind of my new blog. But uh, it was called The End of Genius. And I was thinking the, the kind of lives that those people lived centuries ago when there was no internet, you couldn't just Google uh, Carl Sagan's uh, record and learn about it in five seconds. You had to know it or you had to go to the library or, you know, 
Um, so doing things required a lot more discipline on your part, a lot of self-discipline and a lot of time and effort to become educated. And I think there's some value in that process of being disciplined and practicing the cello or whatever. I, I am terrible at piano, but I have a piano and I've started to play some, <laughs> my daughter likes Taylor Swift. So I'm playing this Taylor Swift song just to get my fingers used to again, but going through that effort of discipline and forcing yourself to do the work, I think wires your brain in a certain way that is, um, lends itself to genius and coming up with really creative things. And when you don't do that, when you're just stuck on the phone or stuck on the computer all day, like I am, I think that can really kill your genius ideas. And I, I bet you, if you looked at the way our neurons are wired, um, there's some fundamental physiological difference between Mozart or Dvorak or, or, uh, Chopin or whoever, and, and modern folks, not that today's people are not as smart or whatever, but, um, the, the ability to just be still and be quiet and think, um, I think probably adds to the creative process. I don't know. I'm just a fighter pilot, but that was my thought. No, no, it's, it's so true. And I, I think about attention span a lot of the time. And I think, you know, when I go to practice the cello, I think to myself, you know, put down the phone. I mean, really it's, it's, it's come into every aspect of life. I mean, I have colleagues top professionals who who can't go two seconds without looking at their Apple watch to see who's texting them uh, in a rehearsal of Brahms, you know, real, I mean, literally. And <laughs> um, and speaking of Brahms, you, you, you mentioned, you know, not being able to have access to something so easily as, as now. Brahms went to see the opera Carmen 68 times. And it's just a, a little, know, it's a, a little anecdote that I like because first of all, we, we always picture Brahms being this, this extremely serious, traditional, the epitome of the German Romantic composers, and and Carmen is is such a is totally other world. You know, it's it's a it's a tragic opera. It's French, etc. But Brahms loved right. it so much he went sixty eight times to see it in person. He couldn't obviously buy a record of it, so that's just a right a, a thing I, I like to tell people. That's amazing. Hey, right, and if you wanted to, you couldn't just put on Netflix, right? You had to read a book. And most people couldn't afford books and didn't know how to read. So like somebody would have like the, the Globe Theater, they'd have to go watch a play and and that would be their annual entertainment. And they'd have to think about that for the next year. So we're very lucky. I, I don't want to trade places at all. But um, I think if you if you could somehow take the best of the Internet and the iPhone and then also give yourself some time off <laughs> to just be still and, and think or meditate or whatever, you go for a walk. Um, I think that's probably the healthiest way to maybe get your creative juices going. I couldn't agree more. And if you uh, need something to listen to, put on Marriage of Figaro for all the people <laughs> wondering. And uh, and uh, and go on a bike ride or something. Or, or <laughs> something to, to get yourself away from the screen because I, I think it's it's not, uh, not, not a good trend when your phone shows you how much time you spent looking at the screen uh. over the past week. Uh, but... <laughs> I don't know about you, but I, I, yeah, I've, I gets to the point where I, I, I swipe it away so quickly. I, I can't see the number. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. I mean, this is my work. I don't have a, I'm not employed. I'm self-employed. So I, I'm in my office on my phone and my computer. That's how I work now. Uh, but yeah, it's a lot of hours per day is my average. <laughs> well, uh, Terry Verts, I, I, I want to thank you so much, not just for the insights into space, uh, into 
into the world, insights into democracy, insights into culture. And uh, I'm glad the conversation went in directions I, I didn't expect or know it would, but that's what I love about this. It was fun. Thanks for having me on. You've been listening to Talking Beats with Daniel Elchuk. The original theme music is by Ronald Barco. The content coordinator is Nathaniel Mose, and Doug Christian is executive producer. We invite you to subscribe and leave a five-star review on Apple, Spotify, or anywhere you get your podcasts. You can support us at patreon.com slash talkingbeats. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash talkingbeats. And be sure to check us out on social media. We'll see you next time on Talking Beats with Daniel Elchuk.